So this morning we're continuing with our study of the Word of God. I'm sorry, the love of God, the Word of God. And you remember last week or last lesson we said that God's love, and we've been saying this, in order to understand and appreciate and experience God's kind of love that is genuinely the love of God. We must understand that love within the broader context of the attributes of God. I think we see that by now. In order to understand the love of God and isolate the love of God from any particular attribute at all diminishes the reality and the truth of God's love. And so when you talk to people, even in the church, what does God's love mean? And you'll begin to get all kinds of answers. And as we'll talk about in a couple of weeks, the answers too often and very sadly center on man as the central issue and significance of the love of God. It's about me. It's about what God is doing in my life. It's God, how I think God acts and what I think God would and would not do, etc. Rather than God's love as identified as that absolute attribute within God that declares his intra, I-N-T-R-A, intra-Trinitarian love. The love that exists timelessly among the three persons of the Trinity. That's what the love of God is. And so one of the things we'll be doing in the next few weeks is at least taking one class, I know one, I don't know how many more, to bear down on and discuss and focus upon God's intra Trinitarian love. We have to do that because that's the location and the essence of what is meant in 1 John 4, 8, and 16. God is love. So last lesson we began to talk about God is love and began to emphasize and connect God's love with his righteousness, with his personal rightness. And God's Rightness means that everything that God does is always compatible with or is in moral correspondence in keeping with his purity, his perfection, his moral rightness. That there is nothing that God does or can even do that in any way at all is not absolutely 100% in keeping with and is the manifestation of his own personal intrinsic holy nature. This is God's righteousness. And this means that all of the works of God, all of his ways, and this is where the challenge is. Anything and everything that God has done, is doing, and will ever do, that every bit of it, is the expression of his intra-Trinitarian love is pure and perfect and right in any and every way. And as we think about that, 
allow your mind just to peruse the circumstances of your own life. Allow your mind just for a moment to peruse the circumstances of your own life. And think of the times, understandably, when you had difficulty in what you understood God as doing or not doing. Any of you with me on this? And what is the question? How can God, why does God, et cetera, et cetera. Aren't these the questions? These are the questions. And the only answer is confining the love of God to not to one attribute in particular, but not forgetting the others. The only answer truthfully is what? No matter what is happening, no matter what I think about it, no matter whether I understand it or not, no matter what, God's love is always right, is always holy, is always good, is always a blessing, always seeking the revelation and declaring the revelation of his intra-Trinitarian love. Always. And that's a battle, isn't it? There are folks in here that you have issues in your family that are really racking your brain and racking your emotional experiences, correct? Is anybody free of any, all of this? And when we begin to ask, why? What's happening? What about God? Ask that, but then remember the answer. And what is the answer, sissy? My God is righteous in all of his ways. And because my God is righteous in all of his ways, therefore I decide in the face of and even against whatever is going on and contrary to my opinion or feelings, I decide to bless the name of this God. I will not dishonor him and create something of an idolatry in a situation. I will bless and I will honor and I will praise and I will trust this God. Amen? This is where... Death to self. This is the core place where death to self occurs. Where death to my self-love must occur in order for God's love to be resurrected in that particular area. None of that is in the notes. So if that is for you this morning, receive it from the Holy Spirit because I didn't have it in my notes. You remember Abraham's question, and we talked about this last week in Genesis 18, 25. Abraham has learned God is righteous. God is forgiving. God is a God of love. Abraham's life has been blessed. His life has been spared of disaster. You remember some of the stories about Abraham. You remember that? Abraham has done some very stupid and foolish things. And yet God did not abandon him. God was faithful to his original purpose 
in calling Abraham. Do you notice I didn't say to Abraham essentially? God was faithful to what, Steve? To his original purpose in calling Abraham. That's where God's purpose and faithfulness is, is to what he is and who he is and what he's doing in our lives. So he's faithful to us within that context. Abraham knows this. Did you notice that God did not abandon Abraham? He did not say to Abraham, unless you repent, Abraham, you ain't going to heaven. And how many times do we hear that preached today? That when a believer sins, someone will say, well, unless that believer repents, you will go to hell. What kind of a theology is that? We don't even see that in Abraham's life, who was a quintessential revelation of the man of righteousness. Amen? Are you with me this? God declared Abraham is righteous in Genesis 15. He's the quintessential revelation of the righteousness of God's love in a man and through a man. And so the Lord appears to Abraham and he says, I'm going to kill everybody in Sodom and Gomorrah. Say what? Where was Abraham's concern? His concern was in the integrity of God's love the integrity of God's honor, the integrity of his name, which means the compilation of who God is. Not just a name, but the compilation of who he is in himself. What you mean you're going to destroy? And his, his concern was not primarily for the city and the citizens. I didn't say he didn't have, I said his concern was not what? Not what? Primary, listen to the words. If you don't listen carefully, you will think we just said Abraham didn't care about the people. Didn't say that. His concern was not what? Primarily, primarily, primarily about the folks. It was primarily about God's integrity. That must be where our concern is centered. If we are going to understand and experience God's kind of love. And so what does he ask? He said, shall not the judge of all the earth deal justly? Will God do what is right? You see, Abraham wanted to know, is God going to treat the righteous and the unrighteous the same way? Abraham knew that God's righteousness meant that God, listen carefully, Abraham knew that God's righteousness meant that God self-imposed, self-obligated himself, if I can say it that way, being incorrect grammatically. That God self-obligated himself because of his eternal purpose in creating us and in calling Abraham. Abraham knew because God is righteous and just in all of his ways, that God could not condemn the righteous. Because of the integrity of who God is in himself, don't you see? And so when the Lord says, I'm going to destroy everybody, why? Why does Abraham ask this? Because who is in Sodom? Who is in Sodom? Lot. Lot. Was Lot a righteous man? How do you know that? Because the Bible tells us Lot was a righteous man. That righteous man's soul was grieved. You remember the reading? Who said that to somebody about something? 
right? Second Peter. So we know that Lot was righteous. Why? Because Lot did everything right? No. But because God declared Lot to be a righteous man. In other words, God declared that Lot's nature was immoral correspondence with the very nature of God himself. And Abraham said, effectively, you cannot destroy someone of your own personhood in a condemning way. I didn't say that he won't die. I said condemning, destruction. Do you see the distinction there? Okay. Abraham knew that. Shall not the what? The what? Shall not, what is the question? What I just read it to you. Shall not what? The judge of all what? The earth deal unjustly on a way that declares you to be unjust. Let me move along. So in order to not punish the righteous, God had to acquit. You know what acquit means? Cause is not guilty. In order to do this, Abraham knew that God was just and he knew that God would not punish the righteous, but only the unrighteous. And so in order to not punish the righteous, with the unrighteous. God has to do something with the unrighteous to make them righteous so their righteousness will protect them from the condemnation and the judgment of God. Their sin has to be acquitted. They have to be declared not guilty. Do we see that? And so Exodus, we had this word in Exodus 23, 7. I mean Yahweh, the Lord. I will not acquit, which means what? Treat not as guilty. I will not equip, acquit, equip, acquit the guilty. I will not do it. Everybody who's guilty of sin is going to be judged and condemned. That's right. Why is it right? Because as we learn, unrighteousness is a repudiation of the very person and nature and holy purity of God's personal perfection. And anything at all, even to the least degree, that in any way is not of that nature, even the least is not of that nature, God's passion for himself and the passion for what is right, God's passion for the integrity of his own name, demands that he must punish the unrighteous. You remember that? Now the world says, well, a God of love is going to do this and that, and he's going to do this, and he's going to do that, and he's not going to punish people. You've heard it, haven't you? And so when Adam and Eve were created, and Adam sinned, you remember in Genesis 3, 6, and he ate those last three words of Genesis 3, 6. When that happened, God's self-imposed commitment to his integrity meant that these people had to be put 
away from him forever. God was self-committed to their condemnation because of their sin, right? Genesis 2, 17, and the day that you eat of the fruit, what happens? You shall surely die. Now, so what could God have done? Could God have just and start all over again? Think carefully. Could God have and start all over again? No. Now, think carefully. No, he could not have. Nick, what? No, he could not have. Johnny, why? Because God made a commitment decision in Genesis 1.26 to create man in his image. And God, in order to be faithful to himself, had to follow through until at least there was one man of his own righteousness. Amen? Amen. He had to. And I hear people, Christians, saying, well, God could have done this, but what? Are you kidding? It's also said, well, you know what? If Jesus had not come... We would, et cetera, et cetera. What are you talking about? That's an impossible word. Because in Genesis 1.26, God, knowing all things comprehensively and immediately knows that when he said, let there be light, in verse 3, and then in verse 26, he gives the reason for the creation. God knows that he must Send his son to redeem the fallen. Correct? So there's no such thing. Well, if there were no cross. That's foolish talk. Now, if the preacher says that one day, don't jump up and call him a heretic. But, but at least understand. Understand this love of God within himself. It is an all-controlling passion for who he is. And that who he isness will be declared in a people of his own righteousness. But how can he do it? Because he cannot just say, okay, rooster, you're forgiven of your sin. He can't do that. The world said, well, you know, God can do it. That's his own choice. So you go to court and your lovely little child has been raped and murdered. And the judge sentences the guilty party to say, you know, we're letting you off because we want to be kind today. How many of you would be okay with that? How many of you know that there would be a deep inside raging against that which we would call what? Justice or what? Injustice. There would be a raging in us. There is a raging in God against all unrighteousness. Do we see that? There has to be. Because the passion of God for himself causes a passion of God in opposition to anything and everyone that is not of himself. It's called love. It's called love. 
So, but can a God of love acquit the, uh, the unguilty of their sin and remain just? Can he do it? Can he just say, all those people, my people who sin, I just, all of you are declared just. Can he do that? Just say it and let it be done. Can he do that and remain just? Can he? No. His righteous love means that something must differently happen. And here's where understanding God's love becomes such a challenge to even us in the church. You see, God has created his people to be a people of his own righteousness. But we have sinned and have become guilty before him. Remember what Romans 5, 3, 9 says. All are under sin. Verse 23, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Isaiah 53, 6, all of us like sheep have gone astray. Each one of us has turned to his own way. And I put unrighteous way. But we were created to be the people of God's righteousness. Do you see that? The image of God. So what can be done? In order for God's love to be a righteous love, God must make a way for his purpose in creating us as his people to be fulfilled. Are we beginning to see that all of this is anchored in God himself? It's all about God. It's all from and for God. He is the centerpiece, the reason for, the manifestation of, the greatness and the glory of his love. And that love is displayed in us, the people of his own righteousness. But how can that be since all of us have sinned? Anyone in here you didn't sin? And because God is love, Listen, because it is absolutely because God is love. His love for his own glory that we read in Romans 1.18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. It is precisely because God is a God of love that he must also be a God of wrath against all unrighteousness. We have to see this clearly as believers because the world refuses to believe this, criticize, and even condemns this kind of thinking, this kind of theology. It rejects it out of hand. But the problem is that God has created us to be a people of his righteous love. There's your problem. Listen. In Ephesians 1, 4, and 5, the last part of verse 4. In love, God predestined us to adoption as sons. God created us. We were birthed into this world as those who would become by God's adoptive power in the Holy Spirit. We would become his sons and his daughters or his children. That was inevitable. It wasn't because you decided for Jesus. It wasn't because you were born in a certain place at a certain time. It was because 
before the foundation of the world, God had chosen you and me. And he chose us within the context of revealing his love in us. Why not someone else? I can't tell you that. All I can tell you is what he has done. I cannot explain the rest of it. So we were born into this world in the sight of God as his sons to be declared or to be manifested when the day of our new birth by the Spirit. Correct? That's what happened. But we were born as sinners. We were born as children of wrath. Remember Ephesians 2, 3, children of wrath. Paul says we are children of wrath just like everybody else. And in order for God to remain faithful to his creative purpose, he had to adopt us as sons. Do we see this? God is obligated not to anything or anyone external to himself, but he's obligated to the consistency of his own purpose and will of his own nature. He's self-obligated. In order to remain God, he must do it this way. Why? Because he chose to do it. Now, why did he choose to do it? There was no reason outside of himself that caused him to do this. The reason was within himself. You see, he cannot adopt us in our unrighteousness. Can't do it. He cannot do it. And yet, Anthony, what? We were born in unrighteousness. But yet he cannot adopt us in our unrighteousness. So that is what he called a conundrum. Is that what that word means? Is that, is that what that word means, a conundrum? Okay. Gene uses these big words sometimes, and I have to go look them up. I'm not sure. In order to adopt us, he must first acquit us of our guilt. We're talking about the righteousness of God this week and next week. Go into further detail next week about the righteousness of God. God is obligated, self-obligated to acquit us of our guilt. But how can he do this and remain just? Now, as believers in Jesus Christ, every one of us should be able to stop for a moment and on the piece of paper at your desk, be able to write out a full explanation of that, giving scripture. You should be able to do that. And if you cannot do it, then you come next week and you'll learn what it is and make sure you understand it. Because the world's going to challenge you. The world's going to challenge you. And your own heart is going to challenge you. And even some in the church are going to what? Challenge this. So in order for God to do this, he must first acquit, uh, acquit us of the guilt of our sin. But he said he's not going to acquit the guilty. So Elaine, where do we go from here? God has to acquit us, but he said he won't acquit us in our guilt. He won't acquit us in our guilt. He won't acquit us. What am I saying? In our unrighteousness. Did you listen to what I said? 
Say it the right way. God will never acquit us in our unrighteousness. He won't do it and remain just. It's impossible. Therefore, what God must do, what must God to do, do to remain holy? You see, God's passionate love for his own righteous nature demands that he condemn all the unrighteous. Do we have that down? Because God is holy and pure and perfect. He must condemn the unrighteous. And all of us have sinned and fall short of the glory or the righteousness of God. He must condemn us because of his passionate pursuit of his own purpose. He must do it. But you see, God has also committed himself to fulfill his purpose that we should be his people. And so God is equally passionate for his purpose as he is for the integrity of his name. Do we see that? As passionate as he is for the integrity of his own holiness, he is equally passionate for the purpose of creating us. So you have a passion in God for himself, which also then begins to be displayed in the passion that he has for creating us. There is that equal passion, if you would, allow me to say it that way, in God. For what God will do for his people and in his people and through his people is equally a passion for his will because the passion of his will is the passion of declaring himself through his will, declaring who he is. So he's equally passionate. Jeremiah 1.12, I am watching over my word to perform it. God has created and watches over the creation and the fulfillment of his own purpose with passion that equals the passion that he has for displaying his own intra-Trinitarian love. And he does that through the accomplishment of his word or his will in his people and in the creation. Isaiah fifty-five eleven, So shall my word be that goes forth, what? Out of my mouth. It will not, what? Return unto me void, but will... But what, but what will what accomplish that which I please and the purpose unto which I sent it? In other words, when God says it, he's going to do it. And ain't nothing in the way of stopping him. Nothing in the way. You see, nothing is in the way. Nothing. Not even my sin is in the way of God's purpose. The preaching of the word that says that man's sin can stop God is crazy. In other words, my sin trumps the glory of the purpose and sovereign work of God. What idolatry that is. That my will. How many of you have ever heard God is a gentleman and he will never make you do anything against your will? How many of you have heard that? I didn't ask you how many believe it. How many will? Okay, just go to Genesis. I love Genesis. Don't you love it? And in Genesis 18, Lot ain't leaving. I'm making it up this way. 
I ain't going nowhere. I'm staying. I'm staying. I'm not going. I'm not going to. The angel of God grabs this man by the arm and he drags him out of the city. I don't want to go. I don't want to go. I don't want to go. God says, you're going. Why? Why, am I, why does God do that? Why does God hold on to us with a tenacity and a fierceness that we cannot get out of and away from his grip? Because God is passionately, what? Determined and faithful to his purpose in saving us. Don't you see that? This is the love of God and righteousness. This is the love of God. If it weren't anchored in his righteousness, then it would be a wavering love based on whether you did this and whether you did that and whether this he liked and, and you agreed to this and you sinned here, therefore. It's not based in that. It's based in the personal righteousness and justice of God himself in the way that he saves us, which we'll see next week. There is a permanence here that you cannot get away from. Why? Because they were a permanence and a solidity and a stability eternally of the love of God as his own righteousness. We must see this. Otherwise, this house that God is building will be shaken and will incur damage if we're not seeing it rightly. See, God's love for who he is means that he is also passionate about his purpose to reveal who he is to his people. It was his passion to reveal the glory of his identity that moved God to share himself with his people. Did we see that? It was the passion for the glory of his own identity. Specifically, his intra-Trinitarian love that move God to create us as the people of his righteous love. Psalm 26, 8, O Lord, I love the habitation of your house and the place where your glory dwells. And this passion is what you see in a man one day. A man walks into the temple, into the court of the Gentiles, and sees all this money laundering, if you would, all this worldly activity in the place where God has chosen to dwell and manifest himself among his people. And that man takes out, takes a, remember the cords and puts it in a whip and he begins to go through that crowd yelling and raising his voice and swinging that whip and turning over the money changes and knocking people out of the way. Why? Because the disciples remember this from Psalm. Zeal for thy house hath what? Consumed me. Why? Because the house of God is the dwelling place of his glory. And that place is in his people in Christ. That's righteous love. That's the right kind of love. Why? Because God has determined that that is the way it will be. This is the only way we can understand God's love for what it is to maybe not like it all the time and maybe not really understand it, but we know that this is it. Therefore, you see, for God to be just means that he had to protect his passion for his identity as well as his passion for his will. How can a holy and just God do both? How can God do this? How can he declare the guilty not guilty? How can he... Declare the unrighteous to be righteous and still remain just. 
The answer lies in Paul's phrase, the righteousness of God. And you'll see next week that phrase is used several times by the Apostle Paul. The answer is in an understanding of how Paul uses the phrase, the righteousness of God. So what we'll do is next week, listen to how God accomplishes his purpose in his unrighteous people and remains righteous in himself. Amen. This is what the love of God is all about. So see you next week.